Design Conversations are a series of podcasts containing recorded conversations with preeminent Australian designers across a series of design disciplines. And if not designers, then those who have had an integral role in Australian design. The series is aimed at preserving an oral history and archive of mid-century design undertakings and to provide an understanding of what it has taken to achieve some of the amazing outcomes in Australian design history. Featherstone, together with her husband Grant, have been seminal figures in Australian design, delivering high-profile projects over decades in mid-century Australia. Mary is celebrated and hard-working in the field of children's <coughs> learning environments, working with schools, childcare centres and museums, and continues as a consultant and an advocate in this space. Mary, welcome to Design Conversations. Thank you, Jeff. <clears throat> Mary, you and I have known each other for uh, for a very long time, and I won't say how long, but <laughs> quite a few years. And um, I'd uh, I'd like to start the conversation if you could take us back to your uh, early childhood, Mary Curry years in the UK. Ah, well, I was born in, um, in near London, right during the Second World War. Hmm. And apparently I was born during a bombing raid. Good heavens. <laughs> and my father was off on fire guard duty and my mother was all on her own. The doctor couldn't get through because of the bombing. Um, and so it wasn't a very good start in life. <laughs> and my Never parents mind. didn't have any more children, so I remained, <laughs> I remained as an, an only child. So... Um, we lived in England until I was about nine. Mm-hmm. Um, we left England because, well, for many reasons, partly the co- very cold weather, which my father didn't like, uh, but also rationing. The rationing that had been introduced during the war continued after the war for quite a few years. And he was a butcher, and that made life difficult. Um, as if it wasn't difficult enough, you know, he would have to get up at you know, in the middle of the night, go out in the snow to make deliveries. It was, it was a very hard life. And uh, so they came to know a couple of um, very interesting young Aussie engineers who had come to England to recruit um, Poms to come to Australia. And Good heavens, yeah. They were so charming. I, I remember them well. We, we remained friends with them. Um, one of them was very creative and very funny. You know, it was such good company. So <laughs> my parents were persuaded that Australia would be a very good place to come. And so my father came out in advance, a year in advance, and then my mother and I followed, having sold up the butcher's shop, and a a working man's cafe that we also had, um, came to Australia to join my my father. Um, And we lived in a little suburban house in the outer suburbs. 
Right. Okay. Well, um, at the age of nine, I'm sure that that was a, a very impressionable age, and uh, probably not not a bad time to uh, to transition. So um, uh, you went to school and uh, and eventually came out the other end. And tell me a little bit more about uh, uh, schooling. Well, in England, I'd gone to a little local state school, mm-hmm. and when we got to Australia. Um, eventually my parents thought I'd better go to school. But they, oh, so they chose the, the closest school, which happened to be a very academic, private, um, all-girls school. Okay. <laughs> and they, they didn't know about private schools because they're, I don't know what it's like now, but, but there were very few private schools in England. So it was just the closest one. Um, and that was disastrous because I, you know, I was not an academic and there was nobody in the school who was interested in art and architecture. Plus one art teacher who gave me a bit of support. But um, so that was not an auspicious start. And I got away from it as soon as I could, which meant that I went from an all-girls school to um, RMIT to do the pre-architecture course. And that was a class of 70 all boys or all male. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you like, oh. Do you remember uh, uh, that would have been in the in the 60s, I guess. Yes. And uh, yes. and uh, do you remember any of your lecturers from that uh, that early stage? Yes, I do. <clears throat> was an interesting physics teacher, actually, that, that I got to know quite well. Um, okay. It was a fantastic time to be there because um, it was very lively. And as you will remember, um, well, I, I subsequently transferred to interior design, which was a terrific move. I'm so glad I did it because yes. my real passion is interior spaces. So, But, but we had wonderful, wonderful teachers. Yeah. Uh, George Crowell, uh, the Czech Interior design. Oh, yes, indeed. Bernie yeah. Joyce, who was an excellent modernist architect. Yes. Um, and Don Chapman, of course, who was passionate about furniture and so knowledgeable. What a lovely man he was. And a lovely man. So yes. they, and we were very close to them. We spent a lot of time with them. But mm. the one who really influenced me, I think, was um, Anne Rado, who... Um, oh, yes, yes. She had very strong social conscience. And we I, I recall very vividly an excursion that she took us on to um, the housing commission, block of flats. Mm-hmm. You know, the concrete housing project. Yes, the towers, yes. Not just a visit. We we were encouraged to talk to the the people living there about what it was like. Yes. And it was you know, a pretty grim picture. And it- I learned a lot from her. Yeah, she was wonderful. She was uh, connected. Her partner, I think, uh, started up uh, the early Melbourne Film Festival, so was engaged. Yeah. Yeah, Radar. Ernest Irwin. uh, Radar. Irwin Radar, that's right. The director of the Melbourne Film Festival. Yes, I I think we were very blessed and and such enlightened people, people like John Duncan and Ron Opie. Yeah. You know who headed up the uh, the interior design course, yeah. and uh, of course we were all perched up in the penthouse uh, on building Hardly four. A penthouse. There's <laughs> a very minimal prefabricated space, oh, in the hall, but it wasn't was on it? top of the other. 
And the only reason was location rather than yeah, <laughs> But it was cold in the winter, hot in the summer. Oh. So in those days, you will remember, we were using, um, you know, primitive techniques, you know, drawing boards, set squares, T-squares. I know. Don't, mm. don't forget French curves. French curves? There's like <laughs> some on the wall over there. Um, but, oh, and the rock ring pens. Elizabeth, who oh, yeah, yeah. I was very close to, still laughs. <laughs> we often laugh about those bloody rock ring pens. Yeah. Oh, dear. And and trying to do the do the lettering. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and I recall some of the early projects. I remember we had to design a, a sideboard um, mm-hmm. for a dining suite. And uh, talk about going back to first principles, we actually had to measure all the sets of cutlery so that ah. we could design the drawers that they would fit. <laughs> Very important. But I think also having people like George and Bernie, they set very high standards. They expect yes. a lot of us. Yes, yes, indeed. And, uh, no, we were very lucky. It was interesting. I only just encountered uh, George Crowell's name again recently. Um, an old friend was a gentleman called Derek Wrigley. Yes, Yes, Derek passed away, unfortunately, just recently. But his sister was uh, was married um, uh, to uh, to George Crowell, Shirley, and that was Derek's sister. So there was a, that that lovely uh, lovely connection. Mm-hmm. But uh, so because I, I recall uh, the height of sophistication was Gallery A, oh, yes. and down yeah. in. Turak Road, and uh, and that was extraordinary. I think opposite Stuart Furniture, which again well, was just down the road from Stuart. From but Stuart Furniture, yeah. That's right. But also, that was the only place, wasn't it? You know, today. Yes, it was. It, but that was the only one, and it was a sort of mecca for anybody who was interested in art and design. Um, and the only place you could go to for beautiful objects was Forum in the Southern Cross. That's right. That's a name I haven't heard for years, Mary. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for reminding well, me. You could go to, no, you could go to Anderson's where Bruce yes. Anderson, who was passionate about Japan, he used to bring in beautiful Japanese things. So yes. There was so little. Yeah, there, there was. And, of course, Anderson's uh, became, did that merge with Ikea. Um, Bruce, Bruce brought that art. He was passionate about Ikea. And I yes. him coming here one day to talk to us about it and said, you know, I'm going to do this. Yes. Um, and we were a bit miffed because we tried very hard to do a um, flat pack project. Yes. With a company called ATEL. Um, but that everybody just said, look, Australians will not put up with um, uh, screwing things together because anyway, <laughs> they'll lose the screws. You know, that <laughs> But, of course, uh, that was a bit of a poison chalice, you know, because, you know, eventually Ikea took over Anderson's and, yes. Um, yes. and that was such a such a shame. But, I mean, uh, extraordinary that uh, they came into the country here at such an early stage. And uh, and what a brilliant concept and what a oh, lovely, lovely outcome. You know, uh, I was a big fan of Ikea. I think. Oh, I, uh, am. I am. Yeah. They, look, they, I think the principle, is, and if you look at the history, the development of the Swedish society from the early 1900s. Um, it, it's absolutely fascinating the connection between the development of a collaborative society and the emphasis on good design that everybody 
deserve good design. Yes, yes. And that it had to be, therefore it had to be affordable and therefore it had to be mass produced. And you can see that leading directly to IKEA. Yeah. But what one of the uh, biggest companies in the world. <coughs> Incredible yeah. story. What really, uh, what I really appreciate is their acknowledgement and crediting for the, for the designers that yes. work for them, you they, know? They work with a lot of designers. Yes, mm. but this is what I can't, it's been a bit of a crusade or a passion of mine. Why can't people attribute uh, the, the work that is produced by them to the designer that, uh, that created it? You know, mm. it's a, it, it would seem to add value rather than yeah. being an anonymous piece. But anyhow, that's that's another <laughs> another question. So no, um, they were wonderful years at uh, at RMIT. They really yes. were. And of course, we uh, we had uh, a few guest lecturers from time to time. Uh, not the least being one Grant Featherstone. Well, Don Chapman, God bless him, took us on a number of excursions. You'll probably remember. Yes. Eight real designers in their workplaces. Yes, yes. And so one of those excursions was to um, Aristotle Industries, the mm -hmm. very large um, manufacturer of metal frame furniture. And Grant had been at that point a consultant with them for, I don't know, 12 years or so. Mm. So he spoke to us and he, he, the way he spoke about design really captivated me. It was such a responsible attitude and yet also very exciting about the possibilities. And he also took us through the factory, which was, you know, a very big thriving factory at that point. And it was it was so interesting. And mm, mm. so I subsequently, having had three years of interior design, I was getting a bit to the point where I wanted to get out and about. And so I badgered Brown until he gave me a, a position at Aristotle working with him. Um, well, good for you. That was a great move, obviously. And, it was. Uh, <laughs> very consequential, too. Very consequential. <laughs> oh, dear. No, but uh, I, I do remember those excursions. I think Danish Deluxe was another one down in Huntingdale, too. And, uh, and Max yeah. Robinson was another one. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I, I think this was part of, um, I suppose, uh, Melbourne tech approach as com compared to, say, uh, university theoretical uh, developments, uh, we you got yeah. that hands-on experience. It was very hands-on. Yes. And developing strong relationships with our teachers. Yes, yes. Well, you, you certainly did that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, mm. uh, that was, uh, there must have been a wonderful learning time. And, of course, uh, Grant was extraordinary. He was such a renaissance man uh, in terms of anything that needed doing at, uh, at Aristotle at those days whether it was from the Christmas cards to the packaging to the Japanese landscaped garden to uh, the advertising programs, apart from designing amazing furniture, um, that was what you did as a designer in those days. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you did, because there wasn't that much work around and there's very little acknowledgement of um, the role of design and designers. I mean, Grant was instrumental in setting up the... Um, uh, professional organisation, which became now the Design Institute of Australia, but he was very active in that in the beginning. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, that was extraordinary. 1948, Society of Designers for Industry. Yeah. And, and he was on the foundation committee along with uh, Jimmy Horton James, I think, and uh, Ted Walsley and uh, uh, Ron Rosenfeld uh, and others. And, yeah, well, Jimmy uh, Horton James was a huge influence. Yes. And uh, I'm, um, I'm really surprised that he's not been acknowledged in the Hall of Fame by the Design Institute. Oh, and what are you I'm, try- I'm trying to rectify that, and it's under consideration at present oh, time. Good. Good. Well, if you need any backing, um, you know, I need would you, well. would you like Would you like to second him? Um, indeed, yes. Yeah, oh, that would be wonderful. But I understand his son, John, uh, who's an architect in mm. New South Wales, is, uh, is still with us, so it would be wonderful. Wonderful if um, John could accept the uh, the induction. Yeah, mm. that'd be good. But that were, they were exciting times, obviously, and uh, starting out. And, and, of course, there was the um, Interior Design Association of Australia uh, that was uh, Bill and Kira Lalive and Jack Crow. Uh, and, of course, that all merged eventually with, uh, with the Society of Designers when it became the Industrial Design mm. Institute of Australia. Yes, so, uh, at all involved in that one? No, no, but um, no, it, uh, uh, it was seen that it was going to be because the, the very early uh, society uh, rather assumed uh, uh, areas such as interiors and textiles and so on and thought it mm. had to be industrial, it had to be product oriented, but uh, mm. that was obviously corrected after, uh, after a bit. So um, um, yes, uh, your your years. So how long were you with Grant at Aristoc? That was for quite some oh, time. It was a I couple guess. of years, and then yes. I really wanted to work in architecture. Mm-hmm. So I got a job with uh, Margaret Daly and Mitchell. Uh, at that point, they were working on the medical centre for the University of Melbourne, which was a very interesting project. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for. Um, a couple of years until we um, married and formed a design partnership in 1965. Oh, okay, right, right. So, um, uh, and I think that if I'm not mistaken, uh, there were a couple of rather nice commissions that came uh, came by your way in uh, yeah. in those yeah, years. Well, yes, yes. Yeah, so well, the Expo chair, which was commissioned by Robin Boyd, um, mm-hmm. I worked a lot with Robin Boyd over the years. They had a lot of um, respect and shared a lot of, of sensitivities, I think. Mm. So Roman um, commissioned that project. So we worked closely with him for uh, a year or so on that. It was a very um, frenetic project. Mm. The mm. uh, chairs had to get to Canada before the port. Some really interesting technology back in back in the day. Very, it was very mm. interesting because Danish Deluxe. Um, that's another whole story. Uh, Neville Ashkenazy had um, had been very brave and uh, and bought the rights to the Plasmobla process, the Danish Plasmobla process for molding uh, ex- expanded rigid polystyrene. Mm-hmm. And it was just perfect for this, the, the expo chair, because it meant you could do something quite large, but light and curved, you know, curved. Mm. So that, that was a very fortunate 
Well, that was a, that was an amazing. That uh, Montreal Expo was uh, was quite something, and uh, I think Robin uh, did the interiors for that, and uh, and yourself and Grant did the chairs. That was such a hit, and uh, yeah. featured uh, Harold Holt as a uh, as a, a seated yeah. person. Mm. Well, it was really Robin's amazing concept um, that because you get so tired in those huge um, international fairs. He wanted to create a sort of very large, comfortable salon um, so that you entered onto a white plush carpet and you sat in a very comfortable armchair and then you, the information about Australia was fed through the headphones. So it was just a brilliant idea. It was a great and, idea, so innovative and, and wonderful. Yeah. And, of course, um, uh, that was very celebrated. It, it Moved on then, and of course you got your next one of your most uh, significant uh, commissions, I guess, with the, the National Gallery. Yes, well, that followed very soon after, which so we didn't get to Montreal, unfortunately, because Robin then was instrumental in um, Grant being commissioned to do the MGV fit out. So with the mm -hmm. gallery was moving from the old building at the other end of Swanson Street, which is now the library. It yes. was moving down to a new building designed by Roy Grants in St Kilda Road. And so we spent, I guess, two years. It was a very detailed and, again, very urgent project, which involved trying to come to terms with the huge variety of the MGB collection because it was both art and, and decorative arts. Um, so I worked a lot on that. So that was cabinetry and showcasing, vitrines, all that. Everything, uh, even the yeah. study storage area, you know, the <laughs> back yes. study storage, conservation areas. Yes. Uh, yes, it was most interesting. And we worked with some lovely people on that, the curators. And, but this was a two-person two team, I guess. Yes, Gosh, yes. that's extraordinary. <laughs> when I look at the drawings now, I think, how did we do it? You know, we, we, <laughs> at that point, we were just living in a little flat in, in uh, a Roy Grounds designed flat, as it happens. Two. We had two little flats side by side, one to live in and one to work in. And oh, we gosh. And that work in that funny little house, therefore flat. So yes. But no, it was was great fun and it was very interesting. You know, look, getting to know the materials. Yes, yes. No, that that's that's extraordinary, and what an amazing outcome uh, to this, but it's this all day. Gone, Jeff, it, 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 there's nothing left because the uh, came in sometime later and just uh, absolutely everything away. So, oh dear, that was Eric West Westbrook. I think was the director at that time, was yes, he? yes. Yeah, he, he and Grant sort of masterminded that. Yeah. What's interesting about Eric is, and I only found this recently, uh, I was sent a photograph of uh, Eric in Canberra at uh, the ANU. Mm -hmm. And he, I think, and Ross Honan, who was the vice chancellor there, and uh, our old friend Derek Wrigley and Fred Ward were photographed together. Mm -hmm. oh. um, and they were, um, I suppose, the, um, the people who initiated the establishment of the Industrial Design Council of Australia. Mm, mm. And Colin Barry was appointed Colin as Barry, its yeah. first director. But mm -hmm. Eric was on part of that uh, that early discussion panel. He was also instrumental mm. in setting up regional galleries in Victoria. 
Right, okay, so Bendigo, Ballarat, etc. I yeah, guess. He yeah. really pushed that along with government. Yeah, yeah, no, so remarkable legacy that he's uh, yes. that he's left, but obviously uh, very design oriented and, uh, and enlightened. And uh, it was wonderful that uh, that you guys got that commission. A shame that it um, that not too much remains, though, Mary. Right. <laughs> there are a few down in the back. Yes. Okay. So tell me, after that, that must have been a, um, a, a bit of a denouement, I guess, and a pause uh, to such large, uh, large commissions. Mm-hmm. How did you venture forth from that as a as a small practice? Well, it was enormously challenging. Yes. It was yes. one of the worst periods of my life, I would have to say. Oh, dear. Yes. Well, apart from the fact that we... We decided that we we needed something other than these two little flats to live and work in, and um, we just couldn't find anything to rent that would do the job. So we commissioned Robin Boyd to do a house and workplace for us. Right. Yes. And I'm still here. In fact, <laughs> fifty years later. You don't you, you don't like removalists. <laughs> oh, I just love this house. <laughs> of course, it's such such a brilliant a brilliant house. And, Wonder. Uh, so yes. we were busy thinking about that, where well, we had to find land and all of that. But um, our association with Aristotle had come to an end and we had to find clients and it was very difficult, very difficult. Mm, mm, mm. Because no, that... we were absolutely committed to um, quantity production. Yes, so we eventually found, well, we worked with a series of manufacturers and I think all the work we did, pretty much all of it, was involved um, plastic moulding of one kind or another. Yes. And so there were some interesting projects, but you couldn't get the market size to justify what we were trying to do. So, but eventually, when it would have been mid-70s, I suppose, we we found that a uh, little company in Dandenong were moulding cold cure polyurethane fiber. Mm-hmm. So we worked with them for a few years, and that was terrific. Yes, because I guess Grant's early work on uh, on the contour chairs and, and similar furniture, which involved, uh, you know, bending plywood into uh, very elegant shapes, was so labour intensive, and uh, it would have been a real challenge to uh, to produce a sufficient quantity to uh, to supply a you know yeah. a steady market. Yes. Well, I didn't know Grant at the time, but when <coughs> I look back at that work, I think that that was Grant as a very young man experimenting. Yes. And he didn't have the resources that the um, equipment that the it said the Eames had in, in America. Mm. So he was really improvising in order to create those contour shapes. But I think in doing all of that, because he produced a, a variety of them, as you know, mm. I think that gave him a language to work with, a language of um, curvilinear form. Mm. But they were expensive at the time and they're still incredibly expensive and they're not I always say it wasn't what Grant and I were on about. Um, mm. 
and yet that's the thing that he's associated with, you know, because they are such recognisable shapes. Yes, and, and of course, there's, uh, I guess, a huge, uh, a continuing market um, uh, on resale and reproduction. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, very small. You know, it's not, it, it's it's art craft stuff. It's not mass resale. Yes, yes, I, yeah. I, I, I guess so. But um, no, it was, uh, um, it would have been um, very much a challenge. And um, um, you became involved, uh, I, I guess, uh, in uh, early childhood uh, learning environments uh, uh, at, at one point. Mary, tell me a little bit about that. Well, that's been my life's work, really. Um, yes. When our first son was born in 1970, um, I think it'd be true to say that Grant and I knew nothing about children. <laughs> and so in- They were small, yes. <laughs> And so I, well, we both enjoyed very much learning about child development. It it fascinated both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, um, and this was a really interesting time to be around as a young woman and a young parent, that it was the time of the liberation movements. Mm -hmm. So I, I, hooked up with a group, with, with Winston McCackie, in fact, um, who'd just come back from New York as a young mother of two children struggling in, in New York. They had set up their own um, children's services. And so she was keen to do that here. So a group of us, very interesting group, got together and started an organisation which eventually became community childcare. And so the fascinating thing about that for me was that I mean, this enabled then women to continue to work after they had children. And it's really hard to believe, you might remember, but um, that was not encouraged at all. You know, mm-hmm. I used to stop work as soon as you had, well, got married or had children. And the only children's services were either very health-based or they were... Um, short-term kindergarten sessions. So if, if you wanted to continue working in the, we're talking about the early 70s, um, it was extremely difficult. So we set up these houses, neighbourhood houses, uh, that would take small groups of, of preschool children and we staffed them. So you, you volunteered for time and you spent time working in the centre alongside trained people. So what I did really fascinating thing there was that it was a new social model. Mm-hmm. Nothing like it. And as we talked about it, as the group talked about what we wanted for our kids, I realised it needed design thinking. Mm. And so what we did was to convert houses to um, create really wonderful environments for small children that that meant they could operate as a group, that they could had a sense of being a family, but they could move from um, one area to another easily. So mm-hmm. a bit like a kindergarten, but um, more suited to long uh, hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that led me to um, pursue those ideas further. We got a research grant to look into it further in the early 70s. 
and we made recommendations, you know, that if this is the way you want to, if wanted to work with children um, and that you believe that this is an incredibly important time in children's lives. Mm, yes. They're growing so rapidly. And when you think about it, you know, children are so dependent on their physical environment. They take their environment in through all their senses and very mm. actively, you know, they're mm. rigorously exploring their environment. Mm-hmm. So that really hooked me in, and that's what I wanted to continue to do. But um, as we realised, there was we couldn't make a living. There was because the general attitude was, well, design of the physical environment doesn't matter as long as you've got good teachers. The environment doesn't matter. Mm. And so I battled that for many years after that. But I kept working in, as just doing things in a voluntary role because we had to keep the other. You know, furniture, yes. stuff going. Yes. Um, so I worked with a variety of schools and hospitals and all sorts of things. And it also led to the setting up of another organisation that looked at community um, schooling. And that was being supported at that time. That was part of the whole sort of um, establish new social mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm to meet new family needs and new understandings about how people yes. develop. Yes. No, wonderful work, Mary, and, and it would have been such a battle uh, in the 70s because it wasn't a particularly encouraging environment. Uh, no. And uh, so well done on that. You you did some uh, work for, with Museum Victoria, I recall. Yes, so that, it, it, that was another thing. Uh, Visiting the museum as a young parent, I realised that the museum was totally um, unfriendly to children. Mm. There was nothing for children at all. In fact, the galleries were guarded by uniformed guards you know, <laughs> to be very quiet, to touch anything. That's <laughs> it's right. Hard to believe now. But, <laughs> and the gallery was the same, and I used to have lots of arguments with Patrick McGuckey about mm. it. But... It seemed to me that what was needed was a, a space for children, really designed for children within the museum. And it took years of agitation to get it through. And But eventually um, the museum dedicated a, a large gallery mm-hmm. that operated as a children's, it was Australia's first children's museum. And it opened um, in 1985 with a thematic exhibition called Everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I learned a lot from that because I worked closely with children to develop the content, and that was one of the best things I've ever done because I then realised how how insightful and um, imaginative and witty and empathetic children are. And yes. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. So they, in, and, and talking with subject specialists at the same time um, about what they thought it was important for children to know, and then bringing those ideas together and working with artists such as the sculptor Peter Cornett and, and other wonderful people and begging and borrowing all sorts of exhibits. Wonderful exhibit we borrowed from the Powerhouse Museum called The Visible Woman. And all of that came together in 1985, and it was incredibly successful. 
I think we had something like uh, maybe 300,000 people through in the first year. It was incredibly successful. That's extraordinary. Yeah, well but, done. Yeah. But mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, there was no competition. You know, so. <laughs> well, but even so, that's extraordinary. But what I learned from that was that um, or what, what it made me question was why, if children have all these capabilities, why are, why are schools so disengaging? So that set me off on another path of um, what, how can we rethink schooling in a way that really respects what, what children bring to the experience mm. and bring it together with you know, experienced, knowledgeable teachers. But so that, um, yeah, that, that led me, oh, along the way, I, I probably the most extraordinary experience in all my life was my first visit to the schools of Reggio Emilia in the north of Italy in 1992, where that little community had been, and it's a sort of very socialist, left-leaning area, communitarian area of the north of Italy. And after the end of the Second World War, they started to to ask the same questions, you know, well, how can we do this better? Mm -hmm. And they... um, they experimented, they evolved these extraordinary schools over decades. They're still today evolving. Um, unlike our sort of ad hoc way of doing things, they, they look at things very seriously. So they go through a real design process, you know, well, what's the brief? What do, we, what do we want to do? What are the needs? How can we do it best? And this has led to the creation of the most beautiful environments and furniture and equipment, um, all out of ob- observation of children. So when I saw, I, I, when I came home, I said to God, I can die happy. I can see that somewhere in the world they're doing it so well. Mm. Mm. Um, and that together with the Swedes as well. The Swedes were doing terrific stuff too. And we, we also visited cent- terrific centres there. So that was all fueling, you know, mm. um, ideas for what we could do with with schools. So I then really gone on since then to seek out school leadership, school school principals, communities who are committed to radical change and work closely with them, um, observing children, looking at the educational theory, educational philosophy, to work out new ways of being with children. Right. Are you op- are you optimistic about uh, the future? Um, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, but but you've obviously discovered. Um, uh, I hope some some school leaders and principals that uh, uh, would encourage uh, this approach. Yes, I've been very fortunate to work with some terrific educators, both um, in primary and then in secondary. I went on to do. Dandenong High School, at Campbell High School, which were very large projects. I think the battle has always been for these schools that um, the traditional approaches and, you know, even down to the traditional design of the classroom, which is a perfect, mm. in many ways, it's perfectly designed for what it sets out to do. Uh, but to break out of that is incredibly challenging. 
And so I have just such enormous um, admiration for the educators who take that on. And sometimes they'll get a little bit of help from the department. But it's gradually built up. It's gradually got stronger and stronger. And now we've got you know, industry, corporate leaders who are saying, it's got to change. You know, The mm. graduates you're sending us are just not equipped to collaborate, to mm. innovate, um, to think critically, you know, all of the things that, that I think designers just, no, you know, when I, talk yeah. to, when I talk to architects and designers about this, they get it straight away. Yeah. Um, so now, um, and right at this moment, I'm just doing a, a sort of survey of what is currently being said by the most luminary figures here and internationally. And the consensus is really building up. It's really strong. So I've got a project with Melbourne University um, that's looking at firming up these ideas so that you can actually then, um, what's the word, you know, said, verify them. So, oh, okay. so that yep. you, can, you can assure parents that, yes, this is sound. Your mm. kids will not miss out if we move in this direction. Yeah. I think it is a good time, actually. I think. Oh, that, that, that's great. I'm delighted to hear you mention Camberwell High. Mm. My grandson, Declan Fitzpatrick, is uh, in year 11 there. And oh, really? thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying himself. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> mm. So, no, it's a great school. We've been mm. to a few programs there where they've... Yeah. Uh, they have a, a, a an excellent music group, and um, but no, he's uh, he's cool. been great, and his uh, his younger brother Charlie is due to start next year. So oh. uh, <laughs> I'm I'm pleased mm. to hear that. The other mm. child ch uh, engagement with children I recall too um, was uh, your work on um, some furniture for the children's hospital. Oh yes, that was a small one. I thought you were going to. But the really interesting project was the modular system of furniture. Um, in 1998, I think, I was commissioned by Bialik College to work on their new um, early learning centre and primary school. And uh, Oh, right, okay, yep. But the, the building had already been designed, so I... And, and that, the leadership there at that time um, were also very influenced by the idea of the Italians, the Reggio, from Reggio Emilia. Yes. So um, we were together and I developed a, a modular system of furniture, which um, Roger Putnam, our dear colleague and friend, uh, helped me with. Right. And that, so it was used at Bialik and then um, there was a lot of interest in it and, and Bialik very generously said, well, okay, you can supply it to, to others. So that, that's gone to many schools in Australia and um, New Zealand as well. Oh, that, that, that's excellent. No, I um, <clears throat> um, was speaking to Roger, uh, I think, only a couple of days ago and, yes, uh, yes just mm -hmm. recounting some uh, uh, some memories of uh, some of the projects that, uh, that mm -hmm. he'd worked on. Now, I was mm -hmm. just going back to the Children's Hospital because I recall mm -hmm. yourself and Grant came into Inner Space at one stage yes. Uh, yes. To, uh, to talk about how, uh, how best to, uh, to develop some, uh, some mm -hmm. modular cube furniture and so forth, which was yeah. for that small project that you worked on. And, yes, uh, you, you helped us to um, 
had that made. That was an interesting project because um, it was about creating a, a, a friendly, welcoming environment for children. Yes. In that rather cold, you know, children's hospital at that stage. Again, that Yes, was, yes. Uh, it, of course, it's advanced since then, I suppose, and uh, yes, it, yes. it's uh, considerably improved. But uh, that's uh, that's wonderful, and and uh, and it's great that you're still engaged and still uh, advocating so uh, so strongly and being consulted uh, about this extraordinarily critical and important area. It uh, it really is. So um, um, it's been lovely to catch up today, I, I must confess. And thank you so much for, uh, for sharing uh, your your insights into into that and um, some of the uh, the lovely memories. And um, I must confess that uh, it was great to go back to uh, some of the early days and People like the Don Chapmans and the Bernie Joyces and the George Krauss and people like George and Lo George Russell too. I was uh, and John Mills were, were names from the past. <laughs> so uh, um, George uh, George was a uh, an actor um, and theatre director, and he brought in was brought in at one stage by John Duncan to teach the history of drama. We could never quite understand why, <laughs> but. Uh, that was the diversity of interior yeah. design training in those days. Everything from uh, from plumbing and hands-on furniture making to uh, the history of theatre and uh, and philosophy. So it was a what we uh, we were extraordinarily lucky. So uh, only forty subjects in the entire course, but <laughs> all packed with uh, with interest. You might remember uh, the trips down to the. Painting and decorating school too. Absolutely, in the in the bottom of William Street, I think. Yes, or, yes. Had to uh, learn how to stumble. How to stumble and and gumble. <laughs> that's right. And fove fove marbling yes. and uh, yes. and timbers and uh, viscosity on paint and. Uh, <laughs> That was uh, that was quite a uh, quite a trip. Yeah. We we're all very shocked, of course, and mm. all railed about against being called interior decorators at yeah. that stage too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mary, it's been lovely to catch up, and you've been so generous with your time. Thank you yeah. so much, and um, uh, I really do look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Richard. True. Okay, then, Mary. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. As a postscript to this conversation, I wanted to acknowledge an important event that took place in January 2021. Mary was recognised in the Australia Day Honours and was deemed a member of the Order of Australia for her services to interior and industrial design. This is an important recognition of a life's work devoted to design, and we applaud Mary's Featherstone. I am.